Welcome to Cars, Trucks, and Bucks on TalkZone.com, the show that's dedicated to saving you money on buying and owning a vehicle. Now, here's your host, Rick Popley. Welcome to Cars, Trucks, and Bucks, where each week we help you make smarter choices about buying and owning a vehicle and hopefully save money. Hello, everyone. I'm Rick Popley, your host and proprietor. Thanks for joining me, and I hope you will be a regular visitor. Today, we will talk about clean green machines. My guest will be John Volker, editor of Green Car Reports, which covers all manner of green vehicles, electric, hybrid, diesel, and others. John will join us shortly to discuss the present and future of EVs, the latest on hybrids, and other topics. But first, here is this week's auto news you might be able to use. Toyota's redesigned Corolla went on sale this week with a surprisingly low lease offer. Toyota's advertising a three-year lease with $2,200 in upfront costs and a monthly payment of $179 for a 2014 Corolla. That is just $10 more a month than the lease for a 2013 Corolla. The 2014 model is larger, has bolder styling, and gets better fuel economy, so you would think Toyota would charge more for the new one. But the competition has even better offers. You can lease a 2014 Chevrolet Cruze for $159 a month or a Ford Focus for $157 per month. So Toyota has to compete. Leasing has become more popular in recent months, and in the second quarter, a record 27% of new vehicles were leased instead of purchased. Consumers find they can lease a new vehicle with less money down than they would need to buy a vehicle and still pay less per month. But before you sign up for a lease because it sounds so affordable, here are some things to think about. At the end of a lease, you will have to start over, either with another lease or buy a vehicle. Will the deals be this good three years from now? If you always lease, you will always have a car payment. Leasing has advantages, but in most cases, saving money is not one of the advantages, at least not for personal use. Over six years, you'll most likely spend more to lease two vehicles than to buy one. Do the math for the long term, not just for the next three years. Honda launched a new Fit subcompact in Japan Wednesday, and the new version is scheduled to arrive in the U.S. by mid-2014. The new Fit will be offered as a hatchback, like the current model, but also as a small sedan and a crossover SUV. Honda also is expected to offer hybrid versions of the Fit in the U.S. Fit hybrids previously have been sold in Japan, but not here. The U.S. models will be built at a new Honda plant in Mexico. Where have all the great year-end deals gone? Remember a few years back when at this time of year you could count on hearing about incredible discounts on last year's models? Offers such as a $4,000 rebate on a car with a $20,000 price sticker? Not so much this year. Yes, there are some big rebates out there on 2013 models, but they are mainly on big pickup trucks and SUVs. You can get a rebate of up to $4,500, for example, on a 2013 Chevrolet Silverado pickup, but that's because the 2014 model already is on sale and it's new and redesigned. Discounts are more targeted these days, not as generous as you might expect. In addition, many brands are pushing leases and low-interest loans instead of rebates. New car sales are up 10% this year, and that's the highest since 2007. Higher demands, man, demand means there's less need to discount. And manufacturers, especially the domestic companies, have learned not to produce thousands more vehicles than they can reasonably expect to sell. But just because there isn't a big wad of cash on the windshield, that doesn't mean you shouldn't look hard for year-end bargains. Instead, do more comparison shopping and price shopping before you make a decision. There are still deals out there. You'll just have to work harder to find them. And that is this year's, this week's, excuse me, auto news 
you might be able to use. A lot is going on these days with electric vehicles and hybrids, and we have a growing number of green vehicles to choose from. Manufacturers put more priority on fuel efficiency. More consumers are buying vehicles that save money at the pump or even avoid gas pumps altogether. Though hybrids have gained widespread acceptance, the jury is still out on electric vehicles, whose sales are being stoked by generous tax incentives. Here to talk about that today is John Volker, the editor of Green Car Reports and a noted authority on advanced automotive technologies. The Green Car Reports website, you just add .com to the name, provides daily news updates, vehicle reviews, buying guides, and other information about green vehicles. If it's green and on wheels, they're all over it. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks very much for having me. John, thanks for being here. And uh, as I uh, mentioned earlier, electric vehicles have become more accepted and popular in just the last year or two. And I noticed that in August, the Chevrolet Volt and Nissan Leaf both set monthly sales records. But EVs are still small players overall. So what will it take for EVs to become viable long-term, and can they stand on their own without these incentives? Absolutely they can. This is something that takes time. And if you look back at automotive history, look at various of the innovations that we've seen. Um, Probably the older folks who are listening to your show remember when the first automatic transmission was introduced just before the Second War. We take them for granted now, but it took a couple of decades or more before even half of the new cars had automatic transmissions. You know, it's not something that happens overnight or in one year. The auto industry is very big, very high dollar, and it moves slowly. So um, the way I tend to present it is this. In 2011, the first year that plug-in electric cars were on sale, both plug-in hybrids and battery electric cars together, we kind of roll them together, um, we sold about 17,000 in the U.S. Last year, we tripled that number to about 53,000. This year, we'll probably come close to doubling the number to about 100,000. Now, most new technologies, people would say, wow, you tripled it and then you doubled it? That sounds pretty good. Um, but still, we sell about 15 or 16 million year cars a year here, cars and trucks, vehicle, passenger vehicles. And 100,000 is a very small proportion of that market. One of the things I like to use for context, though, is that plug-in cars are outselling hybrids at the same place uh, sort of almost 10 years ago. The first uh, hybrids were introduced for the 2000 model year. So two years along, that would be 2002. Plug-in cars are doing better this year than hybrids were then. But, you know, car buyers are inherently pretty conservative. Uh, It's the rare person who jumps from a subcompact hatchback into a full-size sport utility or trades in a pickup truck for a two-seat sports car, what have you. People kind of move through patterns in their life, and they're conservative because they want to make sure that their car does what they bought it for, which is to provide reliable transportation. There is no getting around the fact that electric cars are still more expensive than uh, gasoline cars of a similar size and body style. You know, the Nissan Leaf starts at 28.8. A Nissan Versa is about half that. Um, But electric cars have something. They have a couple points, I think, that over time are going to work in their favor. Um, The first one is that they're vastly less expensive to run on a per-mile basis. So you you continuously make back... The, some of the money, extra money that you spend up front. Um, as retail car buyers, when you and I go to dealerships, we tend not to act perfectly rationally. We'll place a great deal of emphasis on the upfront purchase price, or for a lot of people, the monthly payment. And we won't necessarily look at the total lifetime cost of ownership of the car, which is to say the fuel economy, what we're going to have to put into it and repairs and so forth. 
in part because surveys show that we all think we're going to have the car less time than we actually do. I'm sure you've, you've covered that the average <laughs> car on the road is right. almost 12 years old now. I'm right. driving one. Um, and then the second thing is that in addition to being cheaper per mile, and they can be a whole lot cheaper per mile depending on what your local electric rate is, electric cars are simply nicer to drive. How so? Yeah. How so? Um, get anyone. I, I don't know. Which which electric cars have you driven? I'm curious. I've yeah. driven a, a Leaf and a, a Focus and a Bolt. Okay, great. So all sort of compact-sized cars. Um, I spend a lot of time doing that, uh, working for Green Car Reports. And one of the things I've noticed is that after you spend a whole day in an electric car, because it has no gears and electric motors are really quite quiet, um, you get sort of used to the smoothness. There's a little bit of a whine in some of them. Mm-hmm. But other than that, you get used to the smoothness and the real torquiness. You know, you can an electric car will surprise a whole lot of people at a stop. Right. But, John, let me interrupt to say that um, uh, despite that experience, when you run out of uh, juice in an electric vehicle, you got a problem compared to a gas vehicle. Absolutely. And... Um, I think there are very few people who would ever argue that something like a Nissan Leaf with a 75-mile EPA range rating should be your family's only car. Mm. Um, The average U.S. household now owns, if I remember, 2.4 cars. More cars than kids, right? Exactly. (laughs) And (laughs) Well, and here's the metaphor I like to use. Think about a family that has five kids, right? Mm-hmm. They probably have a Suburban or something like that, right? Something right. with a lot of seats. But they don't have three of them. They'll have a Suburban. They might have a minivan or used to be an old-style wagon, you know, maybe a large sedan uh, or a mid-sized crossover, whatever it may be. And a third car is probably smaller. And every morning they figure out what they're going to do, and they shuffle the cars around. Now, um, For the people who commute, whose round-trip commute is 50 or 60 miles a day, which covers more than two-thirds of all the people who commute, Mm -hmm. something like a Leaf or a Volt works fine. Um, The Volt, because it has the gasoline engine. But to the case you were talking about with battery electric vehicles, um, once you live with one for a while, you get comfortable that, you know, you're going to get 50 miles regardless, even if it's, you know, even if you've got the heater on or whatever it is. Um, on a 75-mile car, you probably won't get 75, depending on how you drive. But you get more comfortable, and, you know, as GM will tell you, till their marketers are blue in the face, um, 78% of cars in the U.S., that's four out of five, mm-hmm. does less than 40 miles a day. Now, your big suburban, if you're hauling the kids around, or if you live out in the country in your nearest hospital 50 miles away, absolutely not a battery electric car household. But there are a lot of cases for people who have predictable commutes, for people who just don't travel that far from home, that they will work, and they really work well as second or third cars. That's okay. the battery electrics. The plug-in hybrids, of course, are pretty much the same as any car, except you get varying amounts of electric range. Right. Uh, currently, uh, California, I believe, is the only state that mandates electric vehicles, um, but may others adopt that? It's a good question. Um, there are some pretty fine points in the law that I must admit I'm not sure I completely understand, so I'm not going to fake it here. But um, California has what you refer, what you talked about, which is what we call zero emission vehicle requirement. Right. Through 2014. They only apply to the top six highest volume makers. Mm-hmm. Starting in 2015, they're going to add some more, and they're going to ratchet up the numbers a little bit. California has been trying to control air pollution since the 1950s, uh, well before the EPA even existed. And so they have the legal right under uh, law to do these things. And they've been very aggressive in saying, we want vehicles that do not emit tailpipe emissions. But maybe I can step back one level to answer the question you started me out with about what will it take for electric cars to get to the point where the volumes really go up. Mm -hmm. Here's how I look at it. Um, You talked briefly in the beginning, I was listening to your news roundup, about um, the fuel economy requirements. 
And as people may have seen in the paper, between last year and 2025, they're going to get significantly stiffer. Um, the, the number that kicks around is sort of 54.5 miles a gallon. That translates to about 41 or 42 miles a gallon on the window sticker. But that's a lot higher than your sort of 25-mile-a-gallon average, and it's harder to get to. So um, most car makers know that they're going to have to do some more advanced technology in their cars. We're going to see lighter cars. We're going to see more aerodynamic cars, cars with smaller engines, so on and so forth. Um, but that all, paradoxically, is going to cost money. It costs you money to save money on gas, right? Right. So the EPA itself says that from 2012 to 2025, to meet these standards that the public actually really supports, go out and look at it, the public are sort of like, yes, we want more fuel-efficient cars, make laws, make the automakers make more fuel-efficient cars. People tend not to like taxes on gasoline, which is the other way to do that. But the EPA says from 2012 to 2025, that technology will add about $3,000 in real dollars to the price of the average vehicle, which is about 10% of the cost. Right. So they're saying that the cost of an average new vehicle goes up about 10%. Most of the people, the automakers I talk to, think that the, how can I put this politely, think that the EPA is being conservative, and that it might cost more than that. Right. Now, automakers have a long history of crying wolf at absolutely everything, um, but it will cost money to make cars that much more efficient. So that's the gasoline and maybe diesel side of things. On the other hand, electric cars right now, with the exception of range, do pretty much everything that a regular car does. They have lights and wipers and stereos and all the gadgets and heaters and whatnot. The major cost, what makes them so expensive right now, is the large battery packs. And for 20 years, consumer battery cells, lithium-ion cells, which is the kind you use in electric cars, have fallen in cost about 7% a year. It's not a complete sort of straight line. You, you do what's called stair-stepping as you get technology improvements. But, you know, if you look at a 7% a year reduction in the price of battery cells, mm -hmm. at the same time that your price of a regular car is going up, it doesn't help you this year, it doesn't help you next year. Things start to get really interesting around 2020. Okay, John, we, we have to take a short break here. Okay. We will continue this discussion, and so please stay tuned to Cars, Trucks, and Bucks. Welcome back to Cars, Trucks, and Bucks on TalkZone.com. Here's Rick Popley. Welcome back, everyone. My guest is John Volker of Green Car Reports, the online news and information site for green vehicles and the latest on fuel-efficient technologies. You can visit their website at greencarreports.com. And if you would like to join our conversation with a question or a comment, the phone lines are open. Call 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. John, we were talking about electric vehicles before the break, and you pointed out that as uh, manufacturers strive to meet higher fuel economy standards, the price, the cost of gasoline vehicles is going to go up at the same time the cost of batteries in electric vehicles is going to continue to come down. Do you foresee a point when they will either be on par or pretty close in price? Absolutely. If you simply take the cost of the battery pack and sort of knock 7% a year off it, mm -hmm. um, and then you sort of map out that $3,000 increase, which is you can roughly say is a percent and a half a year, um, and draw two lines. You get to a point, depending on the assumptions you make, the lines may be cross somewhere early or middle of next decade, somewhere 2020 to 2026 in there. But my personal belief is that for some manufacturers, particularly Nissan, it'll happen earlier because they're really investing the money now into 
driving down their costs. And there's going to be a point where electric cars stop being this sort of odd, unusual thing that the slightly strange family on the next street over got. <laughs> and think about hybrids in, say, 2002, right? Right. There might have been one on the cul-de-sac, and everyone was sort of looking at it. Somebody said, well, can you take me for a ride? And they found out that it was a normal car, only it got 45 miles a gallon, and so on and so forth. Hybrids are now pretty much an accepted part. They're at about 3 or 4% of the market. That'll, that number will probably go up. But they're no longer this sort of strange alien thing in a lot of cases. The same thing's going to happen with plug-in cars. And there's a couple things that, that have sort of helped along. One is that we all have portable devices now, so we're used to the notion of plugging something in at night while we go to sleep, right? Mm-hmm. And that's something that actually didn't happen during the last round of electric cars in the mid and late 90s. Uh, People weren't so much doing that. Good point. So it was a little bit it was a little bit more of a stretch to say, honey, did we remember to plug in the car? Now, of course, there are cell phone apps, and the car reminds you to plug it in, right? Right. Okay. So that's one thing. The other thing is that I think personally... People, as they get more familiar with plug-ins, they're going to start hearing the early adopters talk about how little they cost to run. And there's this interesting factor where, at least in California, about one in three owners of a plug-in car also has solar panels. So they're really getting totally free fuel, in quote marks, right? right? They're actually getting electricity from the sun that they can use to recharge their car. Um, obviously, there are capital costs there, too. But the point is more that as battery costs come down, as gasoline cars get more expensive, you don't have to get to absolute parity. You get to a point where instead of being twice the price, back to my Leaf and Versa example, right? it's probably the difference between the base-level model. We call them stripper models, you know, with rubber mats, that you can't really find at the dealers anyway because people tend not to want them. And for only $10 more a month, sir, I can put you into this much nicer version. Um, the difference between the stripper model whose price you see in the ad and the one you actually buy, or maybe the high-level one with the sunroof and the nav and the leather seats, that's maybe five, six thousand $6,000, something like that. Right. So let's say you go into your dealer, you, see, you saw a price in the paper, for a car that was twenty thousand dollars, you get in and you find that to have it be nice, it's actually twenty two thousand, and the one you really want is twenty five thousand. But between the twenty thousand dollar one they advertised in the paper and the twenty five thousand dollar one you want, there's also a twenty six thousand dollar electric car. So you're saying, oh, so it's only a little bit of difference. But wait, this one on gasoline cost me sixteen dollars every 100 miles. This one on electricity costs me $4.5 every 100 miles. And people start to look at the math. You know, doubling the price of your car is not something that most people are even willing to consider. But adding another $1,000 to cut, cut your per-mile cost by a two-thirds is something people will consider. Kind of, kind of like a, uh, a Prius versus, you know, another uh, Toyota model. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, some of Toyota's models of late, if they're not hybrids, haven't actually been getting great gas mileage. Um, you know, all, ga- all gasoline cars will start to get better mileage. Now. Right. But um, so my personal belief, and I sort of see this, I have a lot of early adopters, but I see this because there's this big fallacy that the only reason anyone would ever buy a plug-in car is for environmental reasons. And granted, I work at a website called Green Car Reports, okay? But the research actually shows, and there's there's some good research out of California, that there are probably five different motivations for buying a car that plugs into the wall, okay? And the people who have these different motivations don't necessarily know each other or agree with each other politically in some cases, except that they all think plug-in cars are a good idea. So the earliest people are the early adopters. You probably know some guy who sent his teenage son 
to sleep outside the Apple Store the day before the iPad came out, right? <laughs> the kid those, volunteered. <laughs> yeah, those are the yeah because they got they bought three, sold one, teen got one, he got one. Um, those are the early adopters. They want the latest, coolest, mm-hmm. most advanced technology. Electric cars are totally that. Tesla Model S's are absolutely all over Silicon Valley. Um, they are the car to have this year. They're sort of the automotive equivalent of an iPad, if you like. Um, so, little, so, little more expensive. A little more expensive. Yeah. Well, they are they are the top X percent of the Silicon Valley market. Right. You know. Um, so then you have the people who like electric drive technology specifically. A lot of engineers in this case. Um, you know, these may be the guys who converted something in their garage or whatever. There's a limited number of them, but they come in pretty quick too. Beyond that, you do get the environmentalists, the people who really want to reduce the carbon footprint of their lifestyles. Now, the ones who buy electric cars are often affluent, um, and so I always look at them and say, so, about that carbon footprint, how many miles did you fly last year? Because that really throws it all out of whack. But they really do want to have less of an impact on the environment, and an electric car with zero emissions is a good way to do that. Following them you get the national security people. Politically, they may be quite different, but their view is essentially every gallon of gas I do not pump is less money going to those people over there who don't much like us. They love electric cars because, and interestingly enough, there are a lot of Afghanistan and Iraqi war veterans among that group. Because they've seen the price Mm -hmm. that we pay to ensure a supply of oil. And because electricity can come from many, many different pathways, whether it's natural gas, you know, coal, we won't have any more coal plants in this country, I don't think, or at least not notable numbers. But coal and natural gas, of course, we've had hydro for a century. We're getting larger proportions of both solar and wind. You know, you can make electricity from a whole bunch of different things, and the car runs on it equally. Right. John, um, we have to take another break here in a minute, but when As we come... As you've noticed, I can talk like this for a long time. You seem passionate, I think is the term, but uh, when we come back, I'd like to just talk a little bit about Tesla and then move on to um, the state of hybrids. You bet. Okay, fine, thanks. That was John Volker of Green Car Reports. Stay with us. Now, more cars, trucks, and bucks on TalkZone.com with your host, Rick Popley. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking today about green machines, hybrids, EVs, diesels, and others. My guest is John Volker, editor of Green Car Reports and a noted authority on advanced automotive technologies. If you have a question or comment for John, the phone lines are open. Call us at 888-463-6748. Again, that's 888-463-6748. John, to wrap up our discussion of uh, electric vehicles, Tesla has had some amazing accomplishments, uh, accomplishments so far, both with its technology and its sales success, and it's even somewhat profitable. Can they sustain this growth that they've been showing, and can they be pro- uh, profitable for the long term? You know, I don't do investment advice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of it out there. Um, I will say that Tesla has managed to pull off what is already an extremely challenging thing, one that I think most of us in the auto industry didn't think a startup company could do and something that a lot of startups have already failed at in the last sort of five years. They managed to make a car that is beautiful, fast, handles well, it's luxurious, it's desirable. It's clearly, at the moment, a fashion uh, item in certain chunks of society, and a car that has no tailpipe emissions, and just to top it off, they're building a nationwide recharging network where you get all your electricity for free on long-distance 
trips. And it also has the uh, highest government safety rating. Absolutely. The, the footnote to that, actually, is that the government hasn't crash tests all of the big luxury sedans because they sell in such low numbers. But, yes, it, came, it got a fantastic safety rating, top ratings on every test. Um, so it's really a pretty spectacular piece of work. Right, but it, all, it starts at $70,000 and can yep. go over 100000 before any tax credits. And yep. what, what can they do or what do they have to do to broaden that appeal and just get down to closer to the average uh, new vehicle price of 30000 Well, they have plans to do that. They say they're going to introduce a $35,000 well, $35, vehicle with a 200-mile range in late 2017, um, or late 2016 as a 2017 model. We'll see if they get there. Um, They've blown through some deadlines in the past, but the answer really is that they're playing on that same 7% reduction in cost for battery cells that we talked about earlier. And they also have to get to be uh, a more known and trusted brand, build out their distribution network, both in the States and globally. They're going into Europe now. They will go into Asia uh, within a year or two. And essentially continue driving down just the cost of manufacturing. You know, they had built 2,500 two-seat electric roadsters, almost as a proof of concept, but now they're a volume car maker. They've made, I forget the number, I'd have to look at my chart, but it's something like 15,000 Model S's. They're cranking them out at about 500 a week. There's a lot of learning yet. They've only been making that car in volume for a year. So they will continue to do that. They're going to introduce a crossover uh, at the end of next year. But really, any car has about a seven-year lifespan. So the Model S that was introduced last year will probably be with us for a few more years yet. And we hope that they can continue to expand, avoid a lot of the pitfalls that have taken down startup car companies. The uh, the thirty five thousand dollar vehicle you mentioned that's due in twenty sixteen. What is that? A sedan, an SUV, or what? The, well, they expect to make a range of vehicles. They've been talking about it as a sedan, essentially a competitor for the BMW three series, hmm. um, roughly of that size. But like the Tesla Model S, they're going to use the platform because they basically have a very large flat battery pack that runs axle to axle, side to side that is the floor pan of the car, and they can put new new and different bodies on top of that. They're going to do the same thing for the volume car that they will for the Model S. Okay. All right. Interesting uh, field, the, the electric vehicles, and it's going to be something that's going to be um, uh, changing rapidly, I think, in the next few years. Yeah. But um, moving on to hybrids, yep. here's something that I, I find kind of amazing covering the auto industry, that... When uh, Toyota last redesigned the Prius for the 2010 model year, they came up with the um, composite uh, EPA mileage estimate of 50 miles per gallon for city and highway driving. No one has has caught that, come uh, uh, reached that level yet, no competitor. Yep. And now Toyota is talking about the next generation Prius being, I think they said, is going to be lighter and more fuel efficient, maybe up to 55 miles per gallon. That's correct. I was actually at that event a couple of weeks ago. What else do you know about that new Prius? Well, a couple of things. Um, The new Prius will have a lithium-ion battery, Hmm. which is what all the electric cars have. And without going into the chemistry, lithium-ion batteries simply have more energy in the same weight. So for the same amount of energy in your battery pack, it weighs about half as much. They now have a Prius now uses nickel metal hydride? Correct. Okay. Absolutely. And they've been using that for 15 years, basically. Um, But they're also very interested in making the Prius more fun to drive. Um, I have have a lot of friends and readers who are Prius owners, um, all of whom get irked when I say this, but a Toyota Prius is simply not very much fun to drive compared to other cars of its size. I would agree with that. Um, uh, It is, however, the most fuel-efficient gasoline car you can buy. Um, But... The leader of the Prius development team, and this is the guy who's been working on Toyota hybrids since 1992, um, also likes to race. Ah. And he is very eager to 
um, put the next Prius, which is going to be on a new, completely redesigned set of components, um, into a more European kind of handling, which is to say you can actually throw it around curves and enjoy yourself. Um, He wants the Prius not to be seen effectively as the sort of car for nerds and science professors, right? Um, I'm I'm being a little reductive here, but the Prius does tend to have something of a... uh, an image, and Toyota actually had the good grace to play the famous South Park episode where the entire little mountain town was attacked by a cloud of smug, and they all drove <laughs> a car called the Pius. Um, so the Toyota sort of gets what the Prius has become. It's a very successful model line for them. Right. Um, in certain states, they actually sell more Priuses than any other car. Oh, but wow. the next one will be lighter, mm-hmm. more fuel-efficient, and probably a lot more fun to drive. Ah, the uh, one of the the things I think that's overlooked about the uh, the current Prius, and this has been part of its history, is how lightweight it is by comparison to other cars. The the regular Prius hatchback is around a little over three thousand pounds, yeah. and and um, I noticed this in regards to the um, uh, Ford C Max hybrid, which recently uh, Ford reduced the fuel economy ratings on it, is that the C Max weighs about 365 pounds more than a Prius V, a somewhat larger vehicle. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, that's like carrying around two adult males in the back seat all the time, in the back seat of the C-Max. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize how incredibly engineered a Prius really is. Mm-hmm. Um, the example I like to use, a lot of Prius owners don't actually know, if you get down at the back of the car and look underneath, um, the Prius has essentially belly pans, very smooth undersides, so you don't get air turbulence. They actually have two little rubber fins to direct the airflow carefully out the most aerodynamic part of the back of the car under mm. the bumper. That's the degree. And these are, you know, they probably weigh a couple ounces apiece. They're little flexible rubber fins, but they actually hang down from under the car just because you get a tiny fraction of a mile per gallon, and the whole car is engineered like that. It's a, a tour de force of engineering. And if they can make it more fun to drive, I have a feeling the automotive media may look somewhat more fondly on it. I say, uh, how can they uh, trim weight from what, what it already is? What are some of the things they could do? Um, well, all automakers are using more high-strength steel, more aluminum, which, of course, is lighter. The big question is going to be carbon fiber, which is you know, a fraction of the weight of steel with the same strength. So far, only BMW is going into producing high-volume carbon fiber cars, and I don't think Toyota will do that for this next Prius. It's expensive, correct? It's very expensive, um, and the Prius is truly a global car. They sell it in dozens of countries now. So it has to be repairable even in sort of non-first world countries. Hmm. Um, But they will continue to take weight out of things that you don't see. They probably will have the lightest air conditioning compressor known to man. <laughs> things, things of that. Right. And if Look at the IQ. Remember the Scion IQ? The yes. little, that has some of the lightest weight, most minimalist components. Just imagine that blown up to a Prius size. I see. Uh, you know, one of the things also is that uh, in, in favor of the Prius is that it is a dedicated hybrid. It's not uh, carved out of a conventional model like the... Uh, C-Max is out of the focus. Or Toyota's Camry Hybrid and a number right. of other models, too. Right. Absolutely. Hey, on, on the Ford Hybrid uh, uh, <laughs> situation, a yeah. few weeks ago, Ford uh, you know, did a Mia Koopa and, and said, hey, we, we uh, made a mistake on the EPA ratings for the C-Max and reduced it from 47 miles per gallon to 43 overall. Was that... Um, an honest mistake on their part, or do you think they were actually gaming the system to try to uh, beat Toyota? It would not be appropriate of me to ascribe motivations to um, the hardworking engineers and executives of an auto company. What I will say is that um, it's pretty well known that the EPA test cycles at this point are grossly outmoded. Um, the highway cycle tops out at 56 miles an hour. When was the last time you drove 56 miles an hour on an interstate? <laughs> um, you know, acceleration from zero to 60 takes most of a minute, whereas, in fact, uh, in the real world, it tends to take 
8 to 15 seconds, and so on and so forth. Ford managed to engineer a hybrid car that apparently completed far more of the EPA test cycle solely on electricity than its users get in real-world driving cycles. Even given that the EPA sort of knocks down the numbers and says, okay, whatever you did on our test cycles, knock 30% off that or whatever the the number is. Um, But what I think makes me scratch my head, and I think Ford has more pain to come because they're having the same problem with their EcoBoost engines. The real-world mileage simply is not roughly equivalent to the EPA combined rating, whereas Honda tends to exceed it, diesel cars tend to exceed it, and Toyota comes in pretty much on the mark. Ford is sort of radically below it uh, for a number of their model lines. What I don't understand with Ford is how could their test engineers and the people who actually spent two and three years developing these cars not have known what their gas consumption was in real-world driving? And assuming that that was known during the car's development, who made the decision that they would go with the EPA test number? Because you're not allowed to quote a test number higher than your EPA test cycle results, but you are absolutely allowed to quote a lower number. And I know one manufacturer actually has done just that. Who's that? Um, I was not able to source it. It's a Japanese manufacturer. Okay. So, and I apologize for being a tease. I have a note out to confirm that they did this, but, you know, Ford could have said, okay, 47 was the number that the Fusion Hybrid got on the test cycle, and they used it for the C-Max because you're allowed to do that with cars that weigh about the same, that have the same powertrain, right. regardless of aerodynamics. Ford could have said, well, you know what? It got 47 on the test cycle, but our C-Maxes in the real world are coming back at sort of 40 or 41. They could have said, quoted at 42, a couple of miles a gallon, no one would have cared. People would have been blissfully happy instead of these lawsuits and all of the mm. sort of unhappiness. Right. I don't understand how the company either didn't know that or made a decision, if it did know it, to ignore it. Okay. John, we have to pause here for one more break, and when we come back, we'll continue talking about uh, hybrids and other green machines. Great. Please stay with us, and if you have a question or comment, call us at 888-463-6748. You're welcome to join the conversation. This is Cars, Trucks, and Bucks on TalkZone.com. Back to Rick Popley. Welcome back, everyone. My guest today is John Volker, editor of Green Car Reports. That's a respected source for news and information about all manner of green vehicles. You can visit their website at GreenCarReports.com. And if you have a question or a comment, the phone lines are open. Call us at 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. When we, uh, just before the break, John, we were talking about uh, hybrids and Ford's issues uh, with its EPA ratings. Based on Ford's experiences, and, and prior to that, I guess it was 2012, Hyundai and Kia had a similar problem with some of their cars, not hybrids, but others. Do you think other manufacturers will be more conservative with their EPA estimates in the future? I would like to think so, uh, <laughs> but I'm a little bit of a cynic, and it's going to get harder and harder to meet the CAFE requirement. I see. So I think there will – it is something that I think all uh, automotive reporters should keep an eye on. The nice thing is there's data out now. Um, there's a site called Fuely, F-U-E-L-L-Y where you can upload your actual observed gas mileage for your year, make, and model of car. And you can do the same thing, actually, on the EPA's website, fueleconomy.gov. Right. Now, one or two ratings don't mean anything. But if you get dozens or a few hundred, they tend to sort of give you a trend. And if you look at most cars, they're sort of on the mark. There's some variation. People don't mind 10% down. Um but when you get 20 or 25% down, people notice. And now there's a lot more data, and it's available much quicker because you can crowdsource it than there was 10 or 15 years ago. 
Right. Uh, just from my own experience, I very seldom, uh, if ever, hit the EPA numbers. And, and maybe I'm too much of a lead foot, but maybe it's just that I do most of my driving in and around Chicago. And, and it's just not easy to be green when you're driving uh, yeah. if you want to uh, keep up with traffic. Let me just tell you a story. This is a, about a year ago, less than a year ago. I drove uh, to visit my son down in Bloomington, Indiana, and it was in a um, uh, Hyundai Elantra Coupe. And, and on Interstate 65 in Indiana, the speed limit's 70, so I was doing 75 most of the way. I averaged about 32.5 miles per gallon, and if I remember right, the EPA highway estimate was 36 or 37. And I said, okay, I was doing 70, 75. Over the next couple of days, I had drive to and from Indianapolis. My speed was between 50 and 60. I very seldom went over 60 miles per hour because that was the limit on a, on, on a state highway, and it's heavily patrolled by police. I got 32 and a half miles per gallon. The same. And I'm wondering, is it me? What, what, you know, what, what more can I do? I actually did, you know, kind of close to the EPA highway uh, routine and still got the same mileage. You know, as they say, um, your mileage may vary. No, it's, it's will vary. Far. It's will vary. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's, that's quite fair. Um, in terms of speed, what a lot of people don't realize is that below about 40 miles an hour, all the energy that you exert goes to moving the car around. Above 40, you start to have to move the air aside. You mm. start to get aerodynamic drag. That goes up exponentially, which is to say the aerodynamic drag at 75 miles an hour is not just half again what the drag is at 50. It's actually more like squared or even cubed. Ah. And so that's why it takes such a ferocious amount of energy to go high speeds over 100 miles an hour. But, you know, I think most Americans are willing to give some slop all the manufacturers, I think, shoot themselves in the foot because they only quote the highway number in big print. Right. And then down in the tiny type, it's the combined estimate is. But um, there's also a point, and unfortunately a lot of people don't understand it because the math is hard, but the difference between 33 and 50 miles a gallon saves you very little fuel compared to the difference between 10 and 15 miles a gallon. Uh. Um, in terms of actual gallons of gasoline displaced, you save way, way, way more gasoline at the lower level. The okay. best thing we could do would not be push for sort of 50 or 60 or 70 mile a gallon cars, but simply set a floor and say that every vehicle on the road has to get 20 miles a gallon. Because if you take the 8 mile a gallon trucks off the road, Think about it over 100 miles. They're using 12 and a half gallons of gasoline to go 100 miles at 8 miles a gallon. If you bump them up to 20, that goes from 12 and a half to 5 gallons. You've actually saved 7.5 gallons. Whereas if you trade in your 33 mile a gallon Corolla on a 50 mile a gallon Prius, that same 100 miles, you only save a single gallon. Wow. How, how do they express it in Europe? They don't use miles per gallon? They use consumption, which is the flip side. It would okay. be their equivalent of gallons per mile. Okay. Because that way, to go a set distance, here's the amount you go. And that translates right across into the money you spend on gasoline. And if a car gets twice as many um, gallons, or if a car uses half as many gallons per mile, then you can translate that directly to how many miles are you going? How many gallons is that? What does it cost? Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, the U.S. didn't go metric either. So I think <laughs> we're stuck with miles per gallon as flawed as it is. The sad thing is that there's a study from Duke that actually says two-thirds of Americans misunderstand it. Oh, they, wow. Yeah. Uh, hey, just, just to switch gears here, um, sure. uh, diesels have been popular in heavy-duty pickup trucks, the uh, you know the F two fifty F three fifty size, yep. But not in passenger cars. Uh, is there any recent change? Do you see that changing? You bet. And in fact, two very high volume American cars are being offered with diesels this year. One of which I drove last weekend. Uh, that was the Chevy Cruze, mm -hmm. new twenty fourteen model. How'd and you like that? Um, it was 
fantastic on the highway. Um, my personal driving cycle, mm-hmm. just based on where I live and what I do when I test cars, is about two-thirds highway. I got a combined 40 miles a gallon over about 350 miles on a weekend. Uh. Um, however, the car is great on the highway. It's a little bit of a pain to drive in the city because it has noticeable lag. So when you want to get away from that stoplight, you accelerate, and it moves forward slightly. You can feel the turbo spooling up, and then bang, bang, bang. It simply rockets away. Uh. But in stop-and-go traffic, not so fun. So it's basically, if you travel like a traveling salesman, lots of high-speed highway miles, buy a diesel. If you drive like a New York City cabbie, buy a hybrid. Okay. All right. But uh, uh, are more Americans warming up to diesels and passenger cars? They have a very, very strong fan base, as do hybrids. Volkswagen did some interesting research that showed that actually diesel buyers and hybrid buyers are two totally different sets of people. Because if you think about it, Volkswagen's had diesels forever, but they didn't have a hybrid till this year. Right. And people would walk in and say, hey, I want a Volkswagen hybrid. And they'd say, well, we have this great diesel. Different audience. Um, more male, younger, and more about performance for the diesel. The problem in America is that diesels are more expensive. Um, they're just more expensive to make, and the after-treatment to keep the exhaust clean costs a lot now. So the cruise diesel is a $25,000 car um, compared to your basic cruise of, what, 17 or something? But um, in Europe, diesel fuel is a lot cheaper in most countries. They've deliberately set policy to use less fuel, so the taxes on gasoline are higher than on diesel. Not the case in the U.S. Right. So um, you get this circumstance where you buy a more expensive car and you fill it with more expensive fuel, but the fuel economy is better. Is there a payback? As Barbie once famously said, math is hard. (laughs) Okay. John Volker, thank you so much for being on the show today and uh, sharing all your insights into uh, the world of green vehicles. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed having you. Great. We'll we'll have to uh, do this again. Thanks. Super. Yeah. So long. That is uh, about all the time we have for this week's episode of Cars, Trucks, and Bucks. Join us next week when the topic will be keeping kids safe in cars. My guests will be Cars.com editors Jennifer Geiger and Jennifer Newman. Both are parents of young children and certified child passenger safety technicians. That means they are trained in how to correctly install child seats and make sure children are safe and secure when traveling in vehicles. They also conduct the Cars.com child seat checks. That means they find out how well child seats fit in every vehicle that Cars.com tests, and that covers a couple hundred vehicles per year. They also can help you pick the right vehicle if you have young children. If you are a parent, or a parent-to-be, or a grandparent, you should join us for this important show next Thursday. In the meantime, please visit my website, CarsTrucksAndBucks.com, for more information about next week's show and vehicle reviews. Thanks again to my guest, John Volker of Green Car Reports. Thanks to you for listening. So long, everyone.